Amen. Good morning again. I am uh, excited to be finishing Mark chapter 10 with you this morning. Uh, There's still some ways to go, but first of all, we're going to take a six-week break from Mark, so it's not actually going to be a... um, Sorry, I was distracted myself in the back. Hey, there we go. Uh, It's not actually going to be something we rush through. I've enjoyed Mark. Hopefully you have as well. There's such depth to this. Uh, there's, there's goodness to be sought out in it. So that's why we're taking our time through it. But the six-week break is an intentional break. First of all, next week is Christmas. We will not be gathering here, but you will be gathering somewhere. So we encourage you uh, to do everything with intentionality. Worship Jesus wherever you are with your family. As you enjoy good gifts, remember the, the giver of all good things. And uh, celebrate Him as you celebrate Christmas because it truly is about Him. Uh, and then on New Year's Day... We will be gathering. We'll gather at 5 p.m. And it's to give you the opportunity, again, to be intentional New Year's Eve, to invite friends over or go out with friends and family and celebrate the coming of a new year. Thank God for a, a year of 2016. Um, and be missional. Be, be all about glorifying God in the way you live your life, and the way you celebrate life, celebrate Him. And so we just bump that to 5. We still want to gather. It's, it's valuable for us to come together. Uh, and then for the, for the month of January, we will be going through uh, what has become our regular sermon series. We'll look at the Word of God. We'll look at prayer. That's God communicating to us, us communicating to God, these essential things in our faith, in our lives. And then we'll also look at two things that our nation recognizes nationally, uh, the racial reconciliation and but with the birthday of Martin Luther King Jr. and um, sanctity of human life. And so we'll do two sermons specifically on those things. So that's the month of January. There's actually five Sundays in January. Every fifth Sunday we do a um, rhythm Sunday. So we'll, that's TBD to be determined. We'll tell you about that when it gets here. Um, so anyway, that's, that's what our January looks like. And then starting again in February, we'll jump back into Mark just to give you an idea of where we'll be. We never really do announcements. So there you go. Uh, So I'm excited today to look at Mark chapter 10 will be verse 46 through 52 in just a minute. If you want to go ahead and get there, you can. Um, We've gone through quite a bit. Mark writes his gospel in a very unique way. It's very fast paced. He uses even the word immediately a lot. Everything about it's really quick. He's getting to the point of it all. And the point is Jesus. So he's often jumping right back to what Jesus does. We're looking at the life of Christ. That's the gospel, the person and work of Jesus Christ. And so he's been very quick about it. Jesus is 33 years old right now. And we've blazed through that 33 years of life. They don't, none of them talk about a big chunk of his life, but even when the ministry started, he, he just jumped right in and he went after it. And, and now we're reaching and chapter 11 starts the final week of the life of Christ before his crucifixion and we slow way down. So in February when we start chapter 11 we're going to look very closely at this what we call the passion week of Christ, his final week of life and and we observe some very beautiful things that he unfolds and we're going to go deep into that and so uh, it's it's going to be a good time but right now we're not there so I'm getting excited we're getting ahead. Uh, but as we look here uh, at this healing story, this is the final hearing, he, hearing healing miracle of Christ, and we're going to in the book of Mark, and we're going to see some beautiful things from it, hopefully. Uh, but let's remember 
who this Jesus is so far, what, what we've seen him do. He's demonstrated great power in ways of calming the seas, in ways of uh, casting out demons. He's demonstrated he, he created all things and he controls all things, but he's done so with this amazing compassion. He's reached out to those who no one else reaches, and he's done so with an amazing grace, patience with the most frustrating people. Uh, he's demonstrated all of this, but he's done so in, a, in somewhat of a rebellious way. He's, he's had a lot of audacity when it comes to social norms and religious norms. He's really pushed the limit on some things and he's upset some people. There's a lot of people excited about him. He's got masses of people blindly following, just superficially following him. And he's got very few people who kind of get it and they're faithfully following him. And then he's got these religious leaders who are just angry. They're stirring with anger, wanting to end it, and they eventually will get their way. And the Romans, pressured by these Jewish leaders, crucify Christ. So, spoiler alert, he's going to die at the end of this. And death loses. He, he's resurrected. He lives. And, and more to come on that. But we see that this gospel story, the life of Christ, the death and the resurrection of Christ, is something we point to often. Because it is our hope. Christ's sacrificial act of love and giving up his life by the grace of God, gives us faith. And it is our only hope. We were completely dead in our sin, and He gave us life. We're blind, and He gave us sight. And so this story we're looking at today is that very thing taking place in the life of a man named Bartimaeus. And so we're going to start in verse 46. And they came to Jericho, and as he was leaving Jericho with his disciples and a great crowd, Bartimaeus, a blind beggar, the son of Timaeus, was sitting by the roadside. And when he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to cry out and say, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And many rebuked him, telling him to be silent. But he cried out all the more, son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus stopped and said, call him. And they called the blind man, saying to him, Take heart, get up, he's calling you. And throwing off his cloak, he sprang up and came to Jesus. And Jesus said to him, What do you want me to do for you? And the blind man said to him, Rabbi, let me recover my sight. And Jesus said to him, Go your way, your faith has made you well. And immediately he recovered his sight and followed him on the way. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We know that... It is true. I pray that for any doubt that would be in us that would say it's not true or question things, that you would allow your spirit to lead us and reveal it to be true. Lead us and show us how profound it is, how it is not just words, but it is living and active and it's moving and it changes things. And so let it change us today. Let your word give us faith, not just to have, but to place in you. And as we believe and trust in the gospel I pray that you would give us sight, that you would awaken us to things that we're blind to, and that you would bring us to life. And for those in here who may not know you at all, I pray that you would draw them near, let them cry out for mercy, and let them hear your voice, and let them see you are good. And for those of us who call you our Lord, I pray that we would live like that's true, that we'd repent of sin, that we'd depend on you, that we'd devote ourselves to you, that we'd follow you. Use this story, this actual story, this true historical story to speak to us here and now as to how we are to live our lives to honor you in every way. In Jesus' name, amen.
Alright, so here we have Christianity. And Christianity requires miracles. So what we've just read about is a miracle. That means it's impossible. It's impossible for a blind man to see just by Jesus saying, Alright, you see now. It's impossible for Jesus to resurrect himself from the dead. But that's what makes it so amazing that it's true. And in the same way, it's impossible for you and I to know God because we're sinners. It's impossible for us to be alive in Christ because we're dead to sin. We're dead in our our own selfish desires and our self-righteousness. We're dead in our self-centeredness. And it's a miracle that He has brought us to life. It's a miracle that He's given us sight. And it's amazing that that is true. And I I thought about this concept and and how simple it can be from watching a a video on YouTube called Lutheran, Lutheran Satire, if you've ever seen those. I'm not Lutheran, so I don't agree with everything they say, but some of it's really funny. They should make fun of some things in a way that needs to be made fun of, like Babylon B does. Sometimes we just need to laugh. You should look both of those things up if you want to laugh. But this Lutheran satire video is these two... It's ridiculous what I've described. These two Irish cartoons, and they talk in Irish accents. Uh, it originally started with them talking to St. Patrick, so from then on when they're in videos, they call everyone Patrick. But they're talking to uh, Richard uh, Dawkins, that, or is it Dawkins, Richard Dawkins, the atheist? Yes, okay. Richard Dawkins. I don't know my atheist well enough. But anyway, they, he's arguing with them about the Bible not being true because there's ridiculous stuff in it. He's like, science is proven. You can't, you can't raise from the dead. And their, their response to this is so simple. Yeah, except for when Jesus did it. And he was like, but it's impossible. To, yes, we know. That's kind of the point. That's why it's amazing. It's so, it's amazing. It's like, yes, it's so simple. It's amazing. It's a miracle. That's the point. That's why we have to have faith to believe. It's a miracle. It's impossible. Yes, you're right. But it's amazing that we, dead in our sin, could be brought to life. That's why we celebrate it like we do. That's why we cheer. Because it's amazing. And so I hope that as we dig into this, this passage that we can let that sink in. This is real. And it's amazing. God has saved us. He's given us sight. He's brought us to life. Let's celebrate that. And when we read these miraculous stories in Scripture, we have to, we have to identify with the right character. Sure, we can learn some things from Christ and how He demonstrates compassion and He demonstrates love, but we're not Jesus. We're in this story. We're Bartimaeus. We're blind. We're in need of a Savior. So as we see these stories, do we really identify? We need to ask these questions. Do we really identify with this? Like when we read of the lepers, do we, do we see ourselves covered in the sores of a leper as outcasts, as hopeless? When we see the demon possessed, do we feel bound by our sin? Do we sense the weight of that helplessness bound by demon possession? Do we, do we understand what it's like to be desperate for deliverance like the woman with the issue of blood? Do we understand what it means to be alienated and alone and broken, unable to do anything? Do we, do we understand what it means to be blind, unable to see what's true, and need a Savior to cry out for mercy? Because that's where we are. We need Jesus. And so here in Mark's account of the gospel, we see this wonderful story as a, as a cap end of healing miracles. And if you remember chapter 8, there was another blind man in, in Bethsaida, and he was healed by Jesus. Um, and, and it's 
after, right after that, he goes into this telling his disciples of his death and resurrection. That's the beginning of this proclaiming, this foreshadowing, this predictions of his death. And then he does it three times. And after the final one, which was the last time we met, he comes back and he's, he heals another blind man. So this is a literary thing, but it actually happened. Jesus is using this, everything between this blind man and this blind man. This is symbolic. This is what discipleship is. This is what it means to come to Jesus. And some examples of what it doesn't mean, how not to come to Jesus. And he uses this to symbolize what's most important for us to see that every circumstance where Jesus brings healing and restoration is both literal and symbolic of something. In every circumstance, the, the true mission of Jesus is to bring sight to the spiritually blind, is to bring healing to the spiritually sick. But he literally did it. He brought sight to this man. But he's pointing to something much greater. Something much more significant that's true of all of us who have functioning eyes. We're spiritually blind and we need to be given sight. And so as we, as we see the casting out of demons and the deliverance of chronic suffering, the freedom from isolation and, and exclusion, as we, as we see the resurrection of the dead, let's realize it's impossible but we're dead in sin and we need Christ and we can be alive in Him. And then specifically for this story, this blindness I think is uniquely symbolic because it's, it's a human condition. It speaks of the human condition of blindness uh, and, and that comes before our salvation. And this blind person can try to figure out how to function like everyone else. He can go through the motions, but he's blind. He can even get really close and look the same and and learn to hear sounds and, and walk with a stick. Or he can function normally, but he's still blind. He will never comprehend the mystery and wonder of sight. And we are there without Christ. We can go through the motions. We can learn to do the walk, talk to talk, appear to be like those who see. But if we're blind, we're blind. And we'll never comprehend the mystery and wonder of knowing Christ. And, and the Apostle Paul realizes this and he writes to the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians 4.4. 4, he says, the God of this world, Satan, has blinded the minds of the unbeliever to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. He's blinded the minds of the unbelievers. That was once us or it may be some in this room. And we don't truly comprehend. This is what you heard in, in Bo's testimony. He knew it all. He, he knew how to answer the Bible trivia. He even functioned like a Christian in some ways. But he was still blind to the, the true goodness of knowing Christ. And when his eyes were opened, it was life-changing. And so he was sure this is something he's never experienced. That's what we're talking about when we talk about Christianity. So as Christians, we have experienced this miracle We've been brought to life, freed from the enslavement of darkness, and we've been given sight. We're transformed by the power of the gospel to live life differently, more than just a convert, but a disciple, a follower of Jesus. And because of this, we commit ourselves to this mission. Because of the gospel, we commit ourselves to it. We continue to be in need of it, and we follow Jesus. And I think this healing story of Bartimaeus may be the best picture of that discipleship. So let's dig in. Let's get into back to verse 46. If you've not been with us before or heard me preach before, I want to just walk through the passage and we're going to break it down bit by bit. And we're going to hopefully see an unfolding of a truth that we need to cling to. 
Um, and, and so the introduction wasn't just for me to talk. I mean, obviously, that's what we're going to talk about. Uh, but Mark chapter 10, verse 46. And they came to Jericho. And as he was leaving Jericho with his disciples and a great crowd, Bartimaeus, a blind beggar, the son of Timaeus, just so you know, was sitting by the roadside. So Bar means son. That's why son of Timaeus is his name, Bar Timaeus. But ironically, Timaeus actually means honor. So he's, his name means the son of honor. This blind beggar is the son of honor. And he's sitting on the side of the road. And that tells us something about him. He's an outcast. He's marginalized. He's a social reject. The community despises him. He's an eyesore. He's a beggar. He doesn't give anything back. He's just he's mooching. They, he wants people's money. He wants food. And so maybe they ease their conscience by giving him some food every once in a while. But for the most part, he's, he's ignored. He's just a guy on the side of the road right outside the city. A few things to point out just to really give us some context. Jericho is that ancient city that you may be familiar with where the walls came tumbling down. Uh, and it's also, there's also a new city called Jericho. The Romans built just about a mile from ancient Jericho. Uh, and so there's, if you look at Luke and Matthew's telling of this, there's some confusion over whether they're leaving or going from Jericho. It's likely they're just somewhere in between Jer- the Jerichos. Uh, but there's a blind man here. And Matthew's telling there's two blind men. And Mark focuses in on this one, and he gives, it, he t- gives us his name, Bartimaeus. So the final stop for Jesus on the way to Jerusalem is Jericho. And he goes about 20 more miles is, Jer- is Jerusalem. And it's not just 20 miles away, but it's also 3,500 feet above. So it's uphill, 20 miles uphill. And Jesus knows this torturous uphill trek is to his beating and murder. And so all of this going on, no doubt anxiety is already setting in in some ways. Jesus did not sin, but he certainly felt the weight, the emotional weight of all of this. Yet he takes time for this, this beggar on the side of the road. Along with him are his disciples and the, this crowd that's re-congregated around him. They kind of reaccumulated as they were traveling. They reached this new city and this crowd shows up. And you may know the story that as the crowd gets in, there's so thick, so many people that this wee little man has to climb into a tree. That also happened in Jericho, Zacchaeus. And so Mark skips over that story because he's trying to get to this point. He wants us to focus in on what's happening with Bartimaeus. And so these, there's this major point, and what is the point? Verse 47. And when he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to cry out and say, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And many rebuked him, telling him to be silent, but he cried out all the more, Son of David, have mercy on me. So we see right away Bartimaeus, lacking eyesight, may have the most insight of anyone in this crowd to call out to Jesus. Expectantly, he calls out to Jesus. And he's expectant because he knows Jesus is able and willing to give him his sight. He knows he's willing and able to show mercy. And so he's crying out for it. Mark chapter 5, the same word of crying out was used to, to describe the, the yelling of the demon-possessed man, the, the man with legions of spirits, the the army of demons living in him, he cried out with the same sort of fervor. It's, this, it's, a, it's a strong word here. It's even used in Revelation 12. John uses it to describe the screaming of a woman experiencing childbirth. So this yelling he's doing is this desperate cry. It's not just this, hey Jesus, if you have some time, I'm over here. He's 
screaming. He's yelling, desperate for mercy. And and the, the crowds try to silence him. And he's not just yelling anything. He's specifically yelling to the Messiah. He uses this term, son of David, the deliverer. Ever since uh, 2 Samuel 7, when it was foreshadowed or foretold, prophesied that Jesus would come, the Messiah would come from the line of David. This term, son of David, is directly tied to the Messiah. It's it's synonymous with the, the Messiah. So he knows who he's talking to. He's calling out for the son of David to demonstrate mercy. And he no doubt knows his position. Because that's why he cries out for mercy. He's undeserving. He knows what he deserves. He's an outcast. The the culture has made it clear to him. He's a nobody. No one needs to give him anything. Every gift is a blessing. Because he's undeserving. And he feels this cultural pressure to be silent. And if that wasn't enough, they explicitly tell him to be silent. This is a culture that no doubt ignores him like, like many do homeless in our society. Just don't make eye contact. You don't have to give anything. Or get your, sit on, your kid on this side of you so that they don't have to get close to the homeless. Just ignore them altogether. Except for here, on this day, they acknowledge him. But only to tell him to shut up. They rebuke him. As if to say, Jesus doesn't have time for you. Be silent. You're embarrassing us. Yet it doesn't stop him. In fact, it seems to fuel the fire. And he cries out all the more. Now Jesus has done this. He's rebuked people. He's silenced people. But when Jesus does it, his motives are different. He's drawing something out. When Jesus tells people to be silent when they ask for something, or he tells them no when they ask for something, he's, he's wanting them to express their faith. He's, he's showing them there's more. You can give me more. And some people like the rich young ruler walk away. But some people press in and they get healed. They get delivered. But this crowd doesn't want that. This crowd wants him to shut his mouth, to step back to the sidelines. You don't belong here. Yet there's something that's drawing him. It's apparent that something is still drawing him. He's just imagine this man alone. This man desperate for help. Catches wind that Jesus of Nazareth is in town. The Messiah is nearby. And he cries out to him. Mercy. Son of David, have mercy. And he ignores the rebuke of this massive crowd. He tosses aside the social norms and what's expected of him. He goes against everything. And and their opposition fans the flame of his desperation. He cries out all the more. Son of David, have mercy on me. In verse 49, Jesus Stopped. Now, literally, this stop is, is to take a stand. He was already standing, he's walking, but he takes a stand. It's, it's rebellion. It's going against the expectations and going against the movement of the crowds. He comes to a halt. And, and, and the crowds walking along, they're, they're, they're gooing and guying or ooh and aahing over Jesus. I mean, they're, they're like kids. They're like girls with selfie sticks trying to get Jesus in the background. I mean, it's just surface level devotion to Jesus because they think he's this political ruler that's going to win something for them. They're they're amazed at him. They want to see the show. Whatever reason, the crowd's going crazy over him. And they're silencing this man. And Jesus stops, not for any of them. He stops at the sound of a cry for mercy. He stops for this 
man, this outcast, this one man, this blind man, the only man in the crowd who isn't spiritually blind is a blind man. So Jesus calls for him. He says, call him. And they call the blind man saying to him, take heart, get up, he's calling you. And immediately the people know what's about to come. They realize Jesus, the guy who can do anything, is asking for this man who's blind, so we know what's about to happen. And so the response is telling, it's, it's, it's your lucky day, man. He's, he's asking for you. Go to him. You, you just won the lottery. This is yours. It's yours to have. Go see Jesus. Get your healing. And, and he gets up in verse 50, throwing off his cloak, he sprang up and he came to Jesus. And Jesus said to him, what do you want from me? Or what do you want me to do for you? And the blind man said to him, Rabbi, let me recover my sight. So let's, let's really try to picture this scene. Because we have to realize this is a real thing. It's actually happening. So in history, at some point, there was a blind man, Bartimaeus, on the side of the road. Jesus is walking through town. And he hears of Jesus. He cries out for mercy. And, and he's never viewed. I mean, he says, I want to recover my sight. So he had sight at some point. But it's been lost. He's never seen Jesus he just knows he's there. And he goes to him. Now, I can't even imagine losing. I can't imagine not seeing. But then losing my sight is a, is a different level of sadness to me. Like, to have been able to view things. I take it for granted all the time, so I have to really think about it. What would it be like to just no longer see? And more than that, for his culture, they kick him out. Like, he's, he's not even welcome to be a part of the, the culture anymore. Like to never be able to see my son again. Like I know he's there. I can feel him. I can play with him. But I can't see his smile when he's enjoying something. To not be able to see my bride when she walked down the aisle to me. To never enjoy any sort of entertainment you have to see to enjoy. To never read a book again or watch a show again. Like I I can't imagine the emptiness, the loneliness But what's more is he is without anyone. And so I'm starting to picture better. It's not just these words. It's not just this thing I read in the Bible once. I'm starting to picture better what this man desires. Try to imagine then the hope that fills him when Jesus calls for him. Just... All the loneliness, being an outcast, never having anyone, having to beg every day of your life. And Jesus is calling for him. No doubt he's filled with a hope, and not just a hope that maybe this is my chance. But it's clear to me that Bartimaeus is sure. This is the Messiah, the Deliverer. He's going to free me from this. This hope is sure. It's not wishful thinking. It's not fingers crossed. He's going to Jesus knowing Jesus can do this. And by the way, this cloak he throws off is more than just a jacket he was wearing. This is his livelihood. I mean, in this culture, the cloak, there's, there's, nothing, there's not much under it. So this cloak is all that he has. It's his sleeping bag in the streets. It's what he lays out for people to give money and, and to give alms and to give food to him. This is how he lives his life. And he throws it off to go to Jesus. And blind people don't throw things because then they have to find them. So this, I mean, he's not coming back for this. He's going to Jesus. And he doesn't need that anymore. 
And Jesus asks him, what do you want me to do for you? Now, this question we've heard before, just earlier in this chapter, he asks of James and John, and they respond with this request for glory and for power. But Bartimaeus doesn't want any of that. This is a challenge of faith, by the way. When Jesus asks questions of people, he doesn't really, like, it's not like he doesn't know something. It's a challenge to Bartimaeus. What do you want from me? Jesus knows what he wants, and everyone in the crowd knows what Bartimaeus wants. He's blind. What do you think he wants, Jesus? But he's pressing in. He's, he's asking him a question. He's showing, I realize you're a human being. I value you. I'm willing to do what you need. Tell me what you want. And, it, and he says, very simply, I want to recover my sight. He doesn't just say that, though. He says, Rabbi. Now, this is different than the rabbis we've heard before. Typically, rabbi is just teacher. He actually says, Rabbanai. It's translated rabbi. But rabbanai is something rarely used. Frequently, it's used to address God in prayer, but it's rarely used to address human beings. So this is a prayer he's expressing to the Messiah. I'd like to recover my sight. And the creator of the universe looks at this blind beggar in the midst of a crowd that's, that's no doubt shamed him for years, alienated him, pushed him aside, ignored him at best. And he asks him, what do you want? And he doesn't ask for power, success, or vengeance against those who have done, done him wrong. He doesn't ask for riches. He doesn't want to be seated on a throne next to him like James and John asked for. He only wants his sight. He doesn't want to be superhuman. He just wants to be human. And Jesus says to him in verse 52, Go your way. Your faith has made you well. And immediately he recovers his sight and follows him on the way. So this man, blind at the beginning of the sentence, sees. Like it's, it's, there's not a phase to this. It's not like, let's try some treatments and see what we can do. He just sees. Now, the, the man that was blind in Bethsaida, chapter 8, Jesus did heal him in phases. And there was symbolism there. Jared walked us through that. You can look up that sermon. And, and, and John's telling of another blind man he rubbed, he rubbed mud in his eyes that he made from spit. But for this man, nothing more was required. Bartimaeus had no doubt. He believed. And boom, he saw. Just lights came on. And what does he see? The face of the Messiah. He sees Jesus. And Jesus tells him, go live your life now. Your faith has saved you. Now we've talked before about this word healed. It's there's other words for healed, the medical terms for healing. Jesus, Mark writes, when Jesus heals, he uses this word that could also be translated save because of the necessary symbolism. He tells him to go live your life now. Literally, go see all the things you've been missing out on. You've been saved by your faith. Jesus tells him he's free to go. Yet he doesn't go. He says he follows Jesus on the way. So this is evidence for us. Two miracles have happened here. The miracle that everybody knows about. Everyone saw it happen. This blind man's eyes were opened. And the miracle that only Bartimaeus and Jesus and us on this side of the resurrection know. This blind man's eyes were open. His physical eyes were open. Everyone saw it. Everyone knows what happened in awe of Jesus. But something far more significant happened. And his spiritual eyes were opened. Bartimaeus has been given new identity. He's brand new. He's been transformed. He's not who he used to be. 
even moments ago. This beggar on the side of the road is now a disciple of Christ on the road with Jesus. Part of the family. Adopted into the kingdom of God. This man will be in heaven. We will, we will worship God forever with Bartimaeus. Because of this moment that's been recorded in history. And in fact, many scholars believe the reason Mark gives us his name, Bartimaeus, is because at the writing of this gospel, Bartimaeus was still in the church. He was a leader in the church. And people would read this and they would know who Mark's talking about. He doesn't give us any other, anybody else's name. All the other people is just this man or this woman or this child. He writes Bartimaeus' name because this is somebody who's in the church. He's been saved by Jesus. He's one of us. This really happened. You can go find the guy and he can tell you the story. It's kind of amazing. Jesus gave Bartimaeus his sight, but what's more is he gave him life. And sure, if Jesus were to come in here and tell us to see and our eyes were open, then we would follow him, right? Well, he kind of did that. He has saved us. He's opened our eyes. And he's also given us the same freedom he gave Bartimaeus. To go and live your life. Only something significant happens when Jesus saves us. The, the way in which we're changed. The way in which we experience this new life. There's nothing else like it. There's nothing else to see for Bartimaeus. He doesn't need to go see all the people's faces that he hasn't seen. He doesn't need to go experience the things in Jericho. He wants to be with Jesus. It's, it's something amazing that happens when our eyes are open. To see Jesus, we mysteriously are no longer bound to sin, but we're bound to Christ. We don't want to go anywhere else. We want to be disciples. We want to be followers. One commentator said it like this. Faith that does not lead to discipleship is not saving faith. Whoever asks of Jesus must be willing to follow Jesus, even on the uphill road to the cross. So from Jericho... It's a torturous walk to Jerusalem, to the crucifixion of Christ. And it doesn't matter to Bartimaeus. He just wants to be with Jesus. He may not know what else to come. He's got tons to learn. But apparently he's devoted. Because he's not going anywhere. And we should respond to the person and work of Jesus like Bartimaeus has. We should cry out for mercy because we know Jesus is near. No matter what people think, we cry out all the more. Throw off your cloak. Put everything aside. There's nothing worth hanging on to when you can run to Jesus. Nothing should hold you back. And when your eyes are open, you walk faithfully with Jesus because only He matters. You give your life to this. Yet if you are a believer, you know it's not as simple as it sounds. There's a cost to all of this. It's a free gift. Salvation is a free gift, but it requires everything of you. And so what we do instead is we allow our shame to hold us back. Our self-centeredness, our self-righteousness, we convince ourselves is enough. But it never is. Whatever it is, I beg you, trust Jesus. I'm begging you because it's all I can do. I wish I could give you belief and I can't. I beg you, have faith. The Messiah is here. He's come. He's done everything you need Him to do to deliver us. The Lord of all creation, the conquering King, has come as a suffering servant. He's given His life up. He's died and, and shown victory over death so that we can know Him, so that our eyes could be opened. And we know He's faithful. He's always faithful. He's compassionate and He's mighty and He's able to save. And He can do impossible things. And so it doesn't matter what you brought in here today. It doesn't matter what baggage you're carrying. It doesn't matter how hopeless you feel your situation is. Have faith. 
doesn't matter how overwhelmed you feel, what you're facing when you leave this place. We can have faith because Jesus does impossible things. We've seen it happen. This is real. Not just physical blindness. Spiritually, He can give sight. And our eyes are opened and we know life has changed. And then we follow Him. And if you really know this, if you really believe what Scripture says is true, then you will follow Him. It doesn't make sense to do anything else. An atheist wrote about this. Second atheist I've referenced in the sermon. It's not common. This guy's name is Matthew Paris. He's a writer for the London Times. And he, uh, he wrote about this mis- mysterious thing that he sees in the Christians he knows. And I found it very interesting, so I just want to read this uh, excerpt. It says, The New Testament offers a picture of God who does not sound at all vague. He has sent His Son to earth. He has distinct plans for each of us per- personally and He can communicate directly with us. We're capable of forming a direct relationship individually with Him and are commanded to try. We are told this can be done only through His Son. And we are offered the prospect of eternal life, an afterlife of happy, blissful, or glorious circumstances if we live this life in a certain manner. Now, don't pay so much attention to his theology. He's an atheist, so it's expected to be off a little bit. But here's the, here's the point I want you to see. Friends... If I believe that, or even a tenth of that, I would drop my job, sell my house, throw away all my possessions, leave my acquaintances, and set out into the world burning with desire to know more and act upon it and tell others. I am unable to understand how anyone who believed that which is written in the Bible could choose to spend their waking hours in any other endeavor. This is an atheist who gets the Bible more than most who claim to believe it. This calling on us to give everything up to follow Jesus is the only thing that makes sense if you really believe it. If you really believe Jesus is who He says He is. If you really believe these stories are true. If you think He can do these things. If you think He can do the impossible. If you believe that, the only response that makes sense is devotion We've cried out in desperation to have mercy. He's shown mercy. If you believe that, the only thing that makes sense is to follow Him. Is it, is it weird to amen an atheist? This, this is wonderful. It's beautiful. It's the most difficult thing in our lives. It's so hard to believe in this way. Now, I'm not saying you need to abandon everything. You shouldn't. But there needs to be this understanding that nothing is more valuable than Jesus. There needs to be this aim in our lives to devote ourselves to Him, to follow Him anywhere He would lead us. And, and if we claim to believe it, we should live like we believe it. It's not necessarily true that you should give up your job and you should abandon your family and friends. But it is true that we would be motivated in such a way that we would give everything up and we'd see nothing matters. Nothing is more valuable. So if you have things in your life, people in your life, that you value more than this following of Jesus, this is, these are the things you need to lay down. And you need to wrestle with and you need to cry out to God, show me more mercy. Help me see how good you are because there's more to believe. The gospel is necessary for everyone on this mission. It's not, it's not an aim of ours to at the crossing to, to say you need to be poor and live on the streets. But it is an aim of ours to say you need to give everything to Jesus. Nothing belongs to you. And there's a mission, Christian, 
disciple, you're on this mission. Nothing belongs to you. It's all His, and we should act like it is. Now, there's many things I want to accomplish when I preach a sermon. And sometimes I just like to let you in on the sermon prep time. There's many things I want to accomplish. Uh, And when we look at a passage, there's tons that can be communicated. There's nothing more clear in this that God does miracles. The miracle of our salvation is real and we should follow him because of it. But I wish I could I could preach it in such a way that would make you do it. I wish it was possible. In fact, I often think I'm just going to. Like I'm going to preach as if my words can actually persuade someone to believe with that sort of, that sort of intent and that, that aggression. I'm going to attack you with words. It's too far. I'm not going to attack you. But I, I really want you to get it. I really want, like there's an angst in me for people to just believe this. I want you to know how good Jesus is. I want you to see that he saves. To know the goodness of our Savior is more satisfying than anything in this world. To be amazed and in awe of his greatness, his power, his sovereignty over all. I just can't accomplish those things. But to the best of my ability, I want to proclaim the word of God like it's true, like I believe it's true faithfully, with integrity and with as much accuracy as I can possibly have and beg the spirit of God to move and to save and to change lives. So this isn't just a time where I'm up here talking. I aim to preach as if it were possible to persuade you to believe, but I rest comfortably knowing that the Lord is sovereign over your salvation. He's in control. And I can have peace knowing that when and how He's going to save, He will. But I'm still going to beg you to believe this. And so we see this picture in this story of this crowd who, who flips their their motivations, like they, they follow Jesus and they hear, oh, Jesus is calling him. And they said, oh, go to Jesus. I mean, I want to be the crowd on the second half of the story. I want to say to you, take heart, get up. He's calling you. Like, I want you to feel that. Jesus is here. Doesn't matter what pressure you feel. Doesn't matter how overwhelmed you are. Doesn't matter what circumstance you face, you face in your life. Take heart, get up. He's calling you. You don't have to be blind. Some of you, he's calling you for the first time to see. And some of you, he's calling you to remember that you can see. He's giving you sight. Quit living like you're blind. But whoever you are, the gospel is applicable. And we have to believe it's our only hope. Let's praise him for it. Let's pray. Father, I thank you so much for truth. I thank you that you have delivered us, that you are the son of David, the Messiah who's come to rescue your people and you have made us yours. And so the sin that weighs us down, the things that blind us, you're able to take away and do the impossible. And so we submit ourselves to you and I pray for anyone in here who doesn't know you as Savior, Lord, save them. And for those who would call you Savior, God, God, make it more true that you would be our Savior. Make it more true of us, not just that we would have faith, but that we would have faith in you, knowing you're able to do all things. And as we continue to celebrate the work of your spirit moving in us as a church and saving more, let us be intentional to live on this mission, faithful to not just believe the gospel as an individual, but to believe it as a church and live it out as a church, as a family of servants on mission, as missionaries to this city. That we'd bring the gospel, this only hope, to the many who need it. In Jesus' name, amen.